Thank you, everyone. You're in good voice this morning. Well, can I invite you to open your Bibles or your devices? Or is, I don't think, is the passage in these? Oh, it's just too efficient here, actually. Well, you don't have to, I don't have to have a page number then or anything. So, well, as you'll be aware from your service sheet that uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. And if you're a regular here at Grace, well, you know that we have been in a, a series in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the, the final section of that series, because this is the final section of the Sermon on the Mount. And just by way of review, and to put this last bit into context, Jesus has been describing what it means to be part of his family one of his brothers and sisters in the family that has God as their father. And in chapter 5, Jesus explained the profile of the family members. And we get a sense that we should keep returning to chapter 5 to remind ourselves of the qualities and the traits that define a Christian person. And some of those specifics are a Christian person is someone who, who recognizes They don't have anything to bargain with because they are poor in spirit. They are are also people who who mourn and and grieve over sin and yet find comfort in the gospel. They are meek in the sense that they are prepared for others to see them as they know God sees them as simply a helpless sinner saved by grace. And their lives are characterized by a desire, a, a longing for righteousness of both thought and character. And they have experienced the new birth. They have been born again, which means they are sons of God, living in the kingdom of God. Chapter 5 explains how Christians are to live in the world, and by comparison, we find that the laws of God are far more profound than the Pharisees or the scribes ever imagined. And then we come to chapter 6, and that contrast with the Pharisees falls away and attention is devoted more immediately to the attitudes and the conduct of the Lord's disciples and the greater righteousness that should and must characterize the sons of God in this world. And verses 1 to 18 warn Christians of the temptation to make too much out of what people think of us. It's the temptation of hypocrisy. The temptation to be overly concerned with how people see you or think about you or even admire you. And Jesus warns that this temptation is going to follow us through the whole of our lives. And Jesus says the only way to overcome that temptation is to please God first and foremost above everything else. And he closes with this promise in verse 18. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. So let me pray for us, and then I will read our our new section. Heavenly Father, we come to this portion of our service where we have your word in front of us, open in our laps, and we pray now that by your spirit, you would come, be with us, teach us, lead us into all truth, and help us to, to apply and understand your message and help us to change. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 16, or Matthew 6, sorry, starting at verse 9, 19. That's Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. 
This is Jesus speaking to his people. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> You know, I think everybody who reads these verses will think about them through the filter of their own situation and experience. I mean, Jesus is speaking about treasure and anxiety. And there are those of us who worry very little about anything. And there are some of us who, who worry quite a bit, but yet we are still able to find comfort in the promises of God. And then I think, like most of us, at least there are times when we can all say that we have been worrying simply because we were worrying. But regardless of where we fit on that scale of worry, the idea of anxiety or worry is the theme of these verses. And the first thing I think we should notice is that although our text neatly divides into two sections, verses 19 to 24 and then verses 25 to 34, they do in fact go together as one continuous thought. And we see that at the beginning of verse 25, where the first word is therefore. Now, the pastor of the church that I grew up in, Memphis, Tennessee, Adrian Rogers, used to say, Bible students must always ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And in this case, it indicates a logical connection between these two sections. In other words, it takes the information from the first section and ties it to the application of the second in order to validate the argument and enhance the impact that it has on our hearts and minds. And starting in verse 19, we see that 
anxiety comes in two forms. Firstly, being anxious about the things I want but I don't have. The idea that one's happiness and fulfillment depends on the attainment of certain things. And then secondly, there's the worry that comes from the fear of losing what I have or seeing what I have taken away from me. And both types of worry find their source in getting what we think we need for living in the world. And that phrase, in the world, is the key, really, to understanding anxiety because it's the mindset that actually keeps us earthbound. It's the mindset that Jesus describes as a, a moral sickness of the soul. And like the wise physician that he is, he traces the source of worldliness in our hearts. And he warns us that we have too much love for what the world has to offer. I mean, hear the words of Jesus in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, what does Jesus mean by that word treasure? Well, treasure is what you prize. Treasure is what you value highly. And for many of us, our first thought goes to money. That, that's correct to a certain extent. We value money, so treasure can be money. In fact, that's exactly how it's translated there in verse 24. It's a good translation, but Jesus is talking about more than money. I mean, we value, we treasure many things in our lives. We have a fascination with acquiring things we don't have that we feel we need. And I think we all suffer from that perennial human tendency to stockpile wealth as a hedge against insecurity. We want to acquire stuff. Now stuff is a very, I think it's a very technical term that covers many, many things. Clothes, homes, income, cars, investments, honor, fame, power, praise, a career, the perfect marriage, children, even ministry success. It includes the things that we value, those things we use to measure how successful we are or how happy and satisfied we are in our lives. And of course, money is one of those things that people use to measure value. Many people measure their self-worth by their net worth. And in our assessment of where we stand in all this, it is important that for a person to be honest with oneself because Jesus says here that what we treasure reveals the ultimate state of our heart. Verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he warns us about finding treasure in things that can be eroded over time or, or eaten or, or stolen from us. In other words, the things that will not last, which is really the common thread shared by every earthbound treasure, all the things of this world. And as we noted, it's not always necessarily physical or material. It can also be spiritual or emotional. In other words, what Jesus means by treasure on earth is virtually endless. It refers to anything in the world and in this life, actually anything under the sun that we can or will eventually lose. Anything that can be taken away from you or destroyed by others. In fact, anything you can lose belongs to this passing evil world. Now, I just want to pause for a minute and say at this point that all these things I've mentioned, 
are not inherently bad or evil. Jesus is not disparaging these things because he gives us all these things to enjoy. The problem arises when, and this is what Jesus is warning us about, is when we place those things higher in our priorities than they should be. And it's obvious, too, we're not all tempted by the same things, are we? Or we don't all put the stuff in the same order. I mean, some Christians are not tempted by money, but they are tempted by power or, or status or, or praise. Others have no desire for the empty praise of men, but they feel relaxed when they look over the size of their bank account. But regardless, the things of the world are all losable. And if you think about it, by its very nature, if something can be lost or taken away from you, then it's really not a very safe investment, is it? And that's the point Jesus is making. It's also the same point that the Apostle Paul made to Timothy in his first letter. He wrote, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, how you live your life, what you make a priority, what your mind is focused on accumulating. Well, make sure, Jesus says, they're above, not below. Be fascinated by eternal things, Jesus says, by the things that are secure, things that will last. And don't be distracted by insecure things, things that will one day just simply disappear from your grasp. It's a warning against an unhealthy fascination with the things of the world. And Jesus goes on to say that an unhealthy fascination with the things of this world is aided and abetted by an unhealthy focus on the world. Verse 22, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Well, Jesus obviously is talking about our spiritual eyesight here, not our physical eyesight. And he points out that an unhealthy focus can lead one into blindness. I mean, it's an ability to focus on the right things which can lead us to the right place, but it's an inability to focus on the right things which actually lead us to the wrong priorities. You may be familiar with Psalm 21. The writer of the psalm encourages us, lift up, I lift up my eyes to the hills, he says. That's where my health comes from. But what happens if I lift my eyes to the hills and I can't see anything? I mean, that is what Jesus is talking about here. Having your spiritual eyes darkened or impaired so that I can't see properly. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if it's healthy, he says your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If you think what you're looking at is light, but yet it's darkness, then how dark is the real darkness going to be? And Jesus is talking about the reality that sin blinds us. It blinds us to the relative value of things. I mean, for example, back in verse 19, Jesus talks about treasures on earth 
and treasures in heaven. Why do I get those mixed up? I mean, why do I think they're equal? And why are there times when, or most of the time, when I think that things now are more important than the things to come? Was well, because I don't see properly. I mean, just, just think about time and eternity. It's really very, very simple maths. How long are you or I going to live? 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years? Give or take a few years, that's about it, isn't it? But eternity with God is billions upon billions upon billions of years, never ending. I mean, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But in order to see and fully understand that equation, I need healthy eyes. Sin darkens the mind and blinds us from the reality of who God is. And that blindness forces us to live our lives colored by the prejudices and the presuppositions that we have just simply made up for ourselves. But the good eye is illuminated by the gospel. It enables us to be the light of the world because we can see the light. In other words, we are illuminated when we see the revealed truth of God. So Jesus warns us of an unhealthy focus on the world. And in verse 24, he goes on to warn us about an unhealthy service to the world. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the original word, here instead of money was mammon, which just simply means riches. And Jesus is saying that we cannot serve two owners or be a slave to two masters. We, we can't be a slave to both material possessions and at the same time have the lordship of Christ in our lives. I mean, if a slave has two masters, what is to be done if the two masters give conflicting instructions to him? I mean, the slave must turn toward one master in loyalty, which means at the same time, he's turning his back on the other. And God and the world have different ideas about living life and living life. I mean, the world says, you have a fantastic credit score. You can now have an elite gold card. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. The world says, indulge your fancies. You've earned it. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, one cannot serve God and the world. Now, at first glance, these here in verses 19 to 24, they, these things can sort of appear like a set of random sayings with the problems associated with wealth and the world and possessions. Sort of like... Uh, standalone Chinese proverbs. But as we noted, that word therefore at the beginning of verse 25 ties everything together. Jesus has told us not to store up things on earth that can, we can lose. And he says ultimately your choices will be influenced by how you see the world. He says so be careful about how you see the world. Make sure you have healthy eyes and a heavenly focus because what one sees is governed by who one serves. And you can't serve God and the world. 
Therefore, he says, do not worry. Do not be anxious about your life. Jesus is speaking here about the whole of life. And he's speaking of it in absolute terms. I mean, being anxious or filled with worry distracts people from what's important. I mean, do you remember the scene from Luke chapter 10? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him speak, while her sister Martha is busily preparing the food in the kitchen for the occasion. It's one of those moments when they had Jesus all to themselves. No one to interrupt, no one to interfere, no one to get in the way. But Martha spent the time in the kitchen. And she became really upset. And she wanted Mary to leave Jesus and help her prepare the food. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus replied, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. But few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. While Mary clings to those precious moments with Jesus, moments that she will never lose, Jesus says, Martha is distracted from them by worry. You see, this is what anxiety and worry can do to you. They can shift your focus away from what truly matters. And ultimately, whether one serves God or the world depends on trust. And Jesus says to us in verse 26 to trust God. He says, look at the birds of the air. They are fed by God, even though they never worry. They never plan. And notice that it's our heavenly father who feeds them. He's not their heavenly father. Yes, he's their creator and he loves them. He loves his whole of creation but he is not their father. And Jesus is saying to us, trust your father in heaven. His trustworthiness is indisputable. This is the God who designed creation. This is the one of whom we can say, this is my father's world. And he designed the laws of nature, the laws of nature that scientists can, can only discover. And yet he provides and cares for the birds. Jesus invites us to ponder the fact that God has made you and me in his image. You are an image bearer of God. And that alone makes you inherently valuable, more valuable than anything else in creation. And your father takes care of the birds. He takes care of his creation. And Jesus says you are more valuable than them. Therefore, Jesus is saying to us, for the child of God, anxiety and worry are unnecessary, they're unworthy, and they're unprofitable. I mean, it's logical thought, and we can see proof of it all around us, and yet there are still times when we worry, and Jesus points us to the source of our worry. Verse 30, he says, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown out in the fire, Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. In other words, Jesus says the root of our problem is not actually worry or anxiety. They're just the symptoms of the problem. Jesus reveals that it's the root of our problem is the lack of faith in our heavenly father. Jesus isn't saying that 
These people have no faith. In fact, he is speaking to the people of the Beatitudes, those people described as the children of God who are going to inherit the earth. They have faith. But Jesus is saying to them that they have insufficient faith. You know, I thought about this week, and I realized, you know, many of us have no problem in trusting Jesus for our eternal salvation. I mean, I have no trouble in trusting that when I die, I will be in heaven with Jesus and the saints. But the challenge of Jesus here is not about eternal salvation. It's actually about, are you trusting Jesus for today? For the trials that are a constant issue of life. Every day that we spend on earth, we face temptation, don't we? And are you trusting in him for whatever comes your way? Jesus calls on us to to look at life and to use our minds and think things through, to, to use our minds and engage our wills to trust God. You know, in both of his letters to Timothy, Apostle Paul calls the Christian life a fight of faith. In other words, as a believing Christian, and as Paul explains to Timothy, we are always in a battle. We are in a fight against unbelief. I mean, it's a a conscious fight against saying to oneself, oh yes, I believe in Jesus for salvation, but I really can't believe that God sustains everything 24-7, all the time, even the minor details. Or we say, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he's going to save me, but I'm not so sure he actually has a script for my life. Or I'm not so sure there are really no surprises for God as, as time runs out its time here on earth. And yet, if we trust Jesus for salvation, why does he say that our faith is still insufficient? It's because we don't trust him for the rest. And just think about this. Salvation is the biggest, the most important thing God could ever do for us. He raised Jesus from the dead, and he's going to raise us from the dead. And to trust him for that, to to do the biggest, the most the ultimate action on our behalf, why then do we wonder if he can take care of the small details here on earth between now and then? And that's really our calling in this passage, to battle unbelief and to believe in God and his promises. And how do we do that? Well, Jesus says in verse 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Put God first. Seek God in his kingdom. Everyone is seeking something, aren't they? Jesus points that out in verse 32. He says, the Gentiles are seeking all these earthly things. But you see, that's because they are restricted to what they can see and touch and taste. Their vision is impeded by the things of this world, and they can't see anything except for those things they will one day lose. But you see, as a Christian, you can seek eternal treasure. Take the advice of Jesus. Seek the kingdom of God first. Because you see, as a child of God, you have a direct line to the center of the universe. You have a direct line to the source of its power. And your heavenly father has both the will and the power to take care of you. Philippians 4, again, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. 
but in everything, by prayer and supplication, application and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, Paul says, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that all those concerns that tempt us and distract us in life will stop you from trusting in God. So cast all of your cares upon the Lord through prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and making your requests known to God. Because when you do, he says the peace of God will guard your mind and your heart, and you will experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. Remember, as Paul said to us in Romans, that God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's talking about salvation here, but the point is, what is it that our salvation demonstrates to us? It shows us that God did not hold back from giving you the very best thing he had to give you. He gave his own son for his people. You remember the story of Isaac? Abraham prepares to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, but as he raised the knife to Isaac, God intervened and provided a lamb in Isaac's place. And as Paul points out, God spared Abraham's son. God spared the son of his friend Abraham, but he did not spare his own son. He gave him up freely for us all. So will not this same God care for and protect his people? Do you really think that God would withhold or take something away from you that he deemed to be good for you in this life or in the next? Or do you think he will deny you something that you really need? Jesus would say, oh, you of little faith. You see, in summary, all of us face the issues of life. And the Lord Jesus is saying to us, when we worry, it's a sign that perhaps our priorities have gotten out of order or perhaps they were never in the right order in the first place. And the cure for anxiety and worry is to recognize that our Heavenly Father knows and sees and He understands our lives, that He cares for us, which means we can abandon ourselves into His care. We can give everything to Him because we know that all these things will be provided for us in the here and in the hereafter if we will just trust him. So where is your, where is your trust? I mean, have you trusted in him? Does it show even in your hour of anxiety? God is calling us this morning to bring all our cares to the cross and to leave them there. And you know, and there's nothing that you can bring that will surprise him. <laughs> There's nothing you can put down there that he doesn't already know about. Remember, there's a great old song, these words. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we, we would commit the whole of our life into your generous hand. and We pray for clear eyes and the strength of 